Hey, this is Wookie from Tone Pros, and you're listening to Signal to Noise. Welcome to episode three of the Signal to Noise podcast. Um, in this episode, we plan on featuring an interview with Wookie of a company called Tone Pros, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, let's kick off with just the news and some other things that are going on. So, for starters, um, as I said in the last episode, we are a part of the Iron City Rocks podcast network now. Um, it's great to be part of that network with John uh, over at Iron City Rocks and then Rock and Snowy down at um, Radioactive Metal. We got a lot of great podcasts that are coming out. Um, John over at Iron City Rocks is featuring the Sunny Landreth episode on episode 124 and upcoming um, John Petrucci um, in episode 125. So John Petrucci of Dream Theater. I'm pretty excited to listen to that interview myself. Can't wait to um, can't wait to hear that because I got to see Dream Theater play back with Iron Maiden last summer uh, when they came through town. And geez, those guys put on a great show. They're just serious, crazy musicians. Absolutely amazing. So while we're talking about John, something else I want to talk about. Um, John had the good fortune to sit down and interview Nick Catanese of Black Label Society. He's the um, the other guitarist there with uh, Zach Wilde. And um, Nick also happens to be a local Pittsburgh boy. That It's funny, John and I grew up... Um, you know, hearing about and seeing Nick's band play, and I believe they're called High Voltage, I always get that wrong, um, back in the day. And it's really nice to see a local Pittsburgh boy do so well. And so you can actually find that uh, interview over at guitarworld.com. I'm pretty sure if you search like Nick Catanese, um, it'll come up. But yeah, so John did that, submitted to guitarworld.com. So um, congratulations and kudos to John for a job well done with that interview. And let's see, we also talked about radioactive metal. So, it's Halloween, almost. Well, as I'm recording this, it's still September, but by the time you hear it, it'll be October. And um, over at the Radioactive Metal Podcast, Snowy likes to do a challenge for himself every year where he listens to, or uh, listens to, watches 31 Halloween movies. So, when I say Halloween, I mean horror, because Snowy's a big horror movie fan. I say Halloween... Because that's kind of what I think of when it gets to that time of year. So I tipped my hat, um, or threw my hat in the ring rather, and I suggested a few movies for Snowy. We'll see how he does. Teeth and Bitten were two of the movies I suggested. If you know what movies I'm talking about, then you've had the misfortune of watching them like I did. Horrible horror movies. They're really, really cheesy. Teeth was interesting, but it was just such bad acting. Um, Bitten, again, just cracks me up. I watched it because Jay of... Uh, Jay and Silent Bob was in it. Eh, it was all right. But then I also tossed out the original Night of the Living Dead. And I tossed that one out because that was filmed not too far from where I grow, grew up. Mm. Um, I still drive that road every day on a regular basis. The road that's in the opening scene of Night of the Living Dead. So that movie's always held a special place in my heart. And then, of course, I'm a child of the 80s. I'm a Kiss fan. What horror movie marathon would not be complete without Trick or Treat? So that is my challenge to Snowy. Um, if you hear this and maybe it's the beginning of the month, maybe Snowy hasn't got all his movies picked, you might be able to get your pick in. So head on over to facebook.com slash rad metal. That's R-A-D metal. And um, you can post some things on their wall and tell Snowy what you'd like him to watch. All right, so... 
Um, enough of those uh, formalities here. Let's talk about the uh, the news, the gear news, because that's why we're here today, to talk about gear and all the things that we love. Now, coming up, or I guess already out, Dean Guitars has a John Entwistle bass. Now, these things are pretty sweet looking. So, I'm a huge John Entwistle fan. I have been since the 80s. Um, when, uh, was it The Who doing Tommy Live? I think that was it when they when they broadcast it on TV. And just, John Entwistle is a bass player. He's so underrated. He never, ever got the credit he should have gotten when he was alive. And I don't even think he's getting enough credit now that he's dead. Um amazing bass player huge influence on me as a bass player and i mean i just can't say enough great things about the guy he did these amazing bass lines i mean listen to you listen to something like um oh my goodness my generation so you listen to the bass solo in my generation right so yep everybody knows it's a bass solo great it's one of the more famous bass solos he's done but then you gotta listen to stuff like the real me and what's a blast is like the real me Wasp covered it, and that's how I learned about the Who's version, so I had to learn backwards there. But Wasp covered that bass solo pretty much note for note. And I mean, John was doing that back when people didn't do those kind of things, especially with bass, with with the way that he approached the instrument. He always had a fresh approach to it, and so, you know, he's, he's a bass player that I dearly miss. Um, wish he was still around making some music. But I'm glad to see the Dean Guitars has released official John Entwistle models. So they have the USA Spider, which looks pretty cool. It looks like John's um, Olympic Flying V, sort of. But it's got um, the spider web inlays, because if you're familiar at all with the Who, you know that John is Boris the Spider. And then there's also a couple different hybrid models. So there's the USA Hybrid, and then there's just the Hybrid. Um, and if you're not familiar with, with some of the crazy things that John used to do, when we talk about the hybrids, um, we're talking about how he used to take a Gibson Thunderbird body and put a Fender Precision Bass neck on them. He used to call them Fenderbirds. And um, the hybrid is catching my eye just because they have it in uh, maple with a maple fingerboard, and that's my deal. Now, the, the USA model you can get with either as well. Uh, but just seeing the maple just makes my day because that's what I like on my basses. I like a nice punchy maple neck. So these look like a couple of great guitars. Um, so definitely check those out, especially if you're John Entwistle fan, because I can tell you I will be looking for them here very, very soon. Now let's see here. What else we got coming up? Um, so since we got Halloween coming up, I absolutely love Halloween. Halloween is one of my favorite ever, favorite ever holidays. Really, really love it. Where else can you dress up all crazy and scary, scare the pants off of people, and they give you candy for it? It's a great holiday. It really is. I love it. So, when I think of Halloween, I think of certain guitars. I will always think of Kiss at Halloween because of the makeup and their imagery, but I also always think of Gene Simmons' Axe bass. The Axe bass is just screams Halloween to me. Um, it just really rounds out and completes his character. Um... The other guitar that I think of around Halloween is Jerry Only's bass, the Devastator bass. If you go to my blog at signaltonoise.fm, last year I got to see the um, Misfits in October. They came through Pittsburgh. I missed them this year. It's a shame. Um, but I've got pictures of myself up on the website with me um, and uh, Jerry Only's Devastator bass. I went to a NAMM show back in, wow, I guess it's over 10 years ago now, back in 2001. And um, it was in California, and I just happened to catch, um, I guess the handler, we'll say, carrying Jerry's bass back to, um, you know, to be put away till the next signing. 
And I asked the guy, I'm like, hey, can I get a picture of that? You know, I just want to snap a picture. And he's like, sure. And then he's like, hey, well, do you want to wear it? I'm like, oh my goodness, can I? So I'm actually wearing Jerry's bass. Uh, that was a pretty exciting moment for me being a big Misfits fan. And um, the Devastator bass, if you haven't seen it, it's kind of like a, it, look, it looks like a big spider. It's awesome. It's so freaking cool. It really is. Um, now we've also got Kane Roberts. If you guys remember Kane Roberts, he used to play with Alice Cooper back in the Constrictor days. He had a crazy machine gun guitar. And uh, so that was some fun stuff. I put up on my Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash SGNL, the number 2NZ, uh, for Signal to Noise. And uh, John over at Iron City Rocks responded, because I was asking what kind of guitars you think of for Halloween. And John suggested the Warlock. I can't disagree. I'd say almost anything BC Rich. So those are my favorite Halloween guitars. And um, I guess we'll get on to the rest of our show here. So, the interview coming up, I want to apologize for the audio, for starters. Um, I could hear an echo on my end. I asked um, Brian of Tone Pros if uh, he heard the echo on his end. He's like, no, I don't hear it. I'm like, okay, well, if he doesn't hear it, it'll probably be fine. I was wrong. I have now learned that if um, I hear the echo, I should hang up and start again. Um, because when you'll hear when I talk that there's a really bad echo, so I apologize. But thankfully... Brian had so many wonderful stories to tell that um, he did most of the talking. Uh, you know, I would just ask a question here and there and then just sit back and listen and enjoy because he has a lot of great stories to tell. Now, another thing before we get into the interview, um, one of my buddies who's listened to the show brought up a good point and he said that I sound overly enthusiastic about some of the products that we talk about here on the show. And so I want to make, uh, make a statement here. Um, just to make sure it's clear to everybody, I don't get paid for this. I'm not endorsed by any of these companies. The companies that we are talking to that we are endorsing are because I love gear. I love music gear. I love these things. I get very excited about it. Um, I used to work for a music store you know, years ago now, and we would go to NAMM shows. I was like a kid in a candy store. So if I feel sound overexcited about the product, it's because I really am excited about the product. Um, I just get excited about these things, excited about new things, and you're going to hear that with me from time to time as I interview different things. So please rest assured, I, you know, there is no um, monetary exchanges going on here. Nobody's paying for promo. Uh, we're simply going out and finding pieces of gear and different things that we want to talk about. And that's what led to today's interview with Brian, well, or Wookie, as he prefers to be called, um, of Tone Pros. So Tone Pros is a company that has got some... Um, a really interesting concept. They're a guitar bridge company. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, huh, guitar bridges, that doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. Well, for a lot of people, they're not. Um, but they've got a unique take on it, and it's going to increase sustain and does a lot of great things. So much so that I came home and I'm like, you know, I really want to try one of these. I was going to go on the website and order them. And then I started looking around and looking at the original manufacturers, realized I have one, I just need to get it installed properly. Um, I have a Schecter C1 Elite Series I bought a couple years ago at Guitar Center, and I need to make sure that I've, I've got everything locked down right. I want to go um, read the instructions, but I've got the set screws. It is actually a Tone Pros bridge on there, so I was pretty excited to hear about that, and um, can't wait to really, really put it through its paces. So without further ado, Let's get into our interview with uh, Wookie, and man, you're going to hear a lot of great stories here, because boy, was he fun to talk to. So, let's hear from Wookie. Ladies 
and gentlemen, I have with me today Brian of Home Pros, and we're going to talk to him a little bit about his company and about his life on the road with the various bands. How are you doing today, Brian? Great. Please call me Wookie. Oh, okay. Everybody, everybody in the business, no one knows me as Brian except for one guy, and for some reason he's the one I answer to it. <laughs> Well, you got it. We're certainly going to call you Wookie today. Um, so, Brian, you wrote for a lot of bands. How did you get your start in uh, My parole officer. I was wanted for murder and found guilty, and they said, it's either jail or you work on the road, which is, which is easier for you. Um, and stupidly, I should have taken the prison time. I said, I was saying uh, prison would be way easier. At times it could have been. Uh, I swear to God, some some booking agents, literally, as we all say, they just throw a a map of the world up and throw darts at it, and that's the routing. Um, Initially, I mean, I think it it was always a a, an an objective of mine to be uh, a technician on the road. Um, I mean, you get paid to see the world. At least you don't have to carry a gun in this industry to do it, for the most part. And, uh, I mean, we can't say we defend a nation doing it, but we sure as heck uh, entertain them. Um, I, I, I kind of knew that was the idea probably around 13 or 14, honestly, that I wanted to do something involving with music. You know, uh, ultimately I wanted to be the one who got to, you know, be on the stage performing. But I, I guess uh, a little bit of fear um, and wanting certain things in life and having a guaranteed path uh, kind of threw me in that direction to steer away from being the performer because uh, of the risk. You know, you could go for, um, you know, a lot of kids get their first quote-unquote record deal, not that anybody buys records anymore, you know, in their early 20s, and some of them are still stuck, you know, playing the dive bars in their 40s. And, uh, you know, and if they don't, if they don't tour, they don't, uh, they don't. They, they lose their house. You know that's that's not a life for me, and that's not what I wanted. I wanted a family, and I wanted, you know, I, I wanted something a little more than that. So uh, uh, it wasn't until I got into college, um, there was a band on campus that, uh, um, you know, they always they always had shows at least you know a couple times a semester, um, and. Uh, I wasn't a big drinker, so unfortunately they had to pay me with cash, which was their hardest part, but, you know, they scraped something together. Uh, they said, how about, how about pizza? I'm like, all right, that's fine. Um, and it was one of those things where, you know, it was uh, uh, the the lead singer was also the lead guitar player, and uh, the guy was amazing, and, and he had this old Fernandez Strat, and the first time he put it in my hands, I'm like, dude, your A string is bigger than your E string. He says, well, what's the difference? <laughs> so I restrung it with a set and, uh, you know, reset it up, and, you know, the little tweaks you do here and there, trust rod adjustment, blah, blah, blah. And when I handed it back to him, you know, about an hour later, he says, where's my guitar? I said, it's in your hands. He says, this doesn't feel like my guitar. I said, well, this is how your guitar was supposed to feel in the first place. And that kind of lit the bell. And But, uh and then uh, all the shows that we would have coming through the campus, um, I would help set up the production and stuff like that. And, and I, I don't know where the knowledge of it came from. I just had a natural knack for it, I guess. I'm, I'm not saying I'm the best at it, 
Um, but uh, close to 20 years later, I like to say I worked my ass off on it. Um, so, and then I, when I got out of college, I, uh, um, I started working for a small theater company out of uh, Media, Pennsylvania that uh, I guess you could say uh, regionally toured. We had two venues, one in northern Pennsylvania, one in Philadelphia, just outside Philly. And I quickly worked my way up the ladder um, with the company. It was a small company, and but I learned, you know, I learned carpentry. I, I dove into learning all of it. You know, I figured the best way to stay employed is by having a general knowledge. And then, uh, you know, I started doing lighting and sound and sound design, um, which is to say, as far as sound design went for those shows, I was the one designing all the sound cues that would happen underneath everything. And I mixed a few shows. Um, I hated doing that to some extent because I actually liked being more on the deck and uh, overseeing things, you know. Yeah, and yeah. I had a, natu- a, a good knack for leadership. I was just, you know, the alpha male syndrome, <laughs> as Ted Nugent would say. And uh, I, I just kind of knew how to how the show should flow as far as, you know, scenery moving and stuff like that. And I'll just branched out of that. Um, met a girl on on one show, and she lived in New York City. And I said, "Well, I'm never going to get to a higher level unless I go to New York City." So I eventually moved up with her, um, and from there, uh, uh, started doing temp work. And I got a temp job answering the phones of Fox News, and uh, that led to an interview. Uh, for the new Fox, well, not new anymore, but Fox News Channel. That was part of the engineering team that built that place. Oh, you know, wow, it was, wow. It was a learn-as-you-go thing, but, again, it was, I don't know how I knew it. I just knew it, you know, wiring stuff up, and, you know, we did all the computers, uh, software installation and stuff like that. Um, I, I was the only one who knew lighting, so I did all the lighting inventory and focuses for, you know, that when the... Uh, the LD for each studio came in um, and then uh, became a teleprompter once it went to air and started shadowing stage managing. And then we started doing uh, that first year was open. They, they, they uh, went to air live originally back in October of, I want to say 96 or 97. I think 90, 97. I could be wrong. It's either 96 or 97. And we did this thing called Fox Fest, where the right there on the corner of Sixth Avenue, they would have live shows. And you know, we had Tears for Fears came in, Tower of Power, and stuff like that. And SIR Backline brought in, you know, the backline for uh, the events, and they were <laughs> they were the greatest man. They'd bring it, and they they would. They would bring it and literally drop it off and run to the truck and take off because they were supposed to set it up. Uh, so I would just, you know, happen. I won the first time and they were we did it. I happened to be walking by and then the gentleman in charge of the whole thing um, just sat there shaking his head. You know, it was Tower of Power. That's no small backline. Oh yeah. And, oh yeah. And uh, I looked and I said, "What's the problem?" He says, "Those, you know, those, you know, J holes just took off, you know, and didn't do what they're being paid to do." And I said, "Well, what do you need to have done?" He says, "Well, I need a 
you know, a, a keyboard rig set up, a drum, a drum kit, a guitar rig, a bass rig. I mean, just I'm like, well, I'll do it. And I set it up, and you know, got tones for everything. And he kind of just kind of handed the those shows to me as stage manager and basically setting a backline and you know, the backline supervisor for those events. And again, it was just yeah, I, I really kind of like doing that. And we eventually moved to New York or to uh, the Boston area, and um, I started doing a lot more, you know, music production, and mo- mostly with uh, IATSE up here and with some uh, non-union companies as well, and just kind of found that that was the niche, and then started touring with a, a small children's opera company and started off as the carpenter, and three months later I was the crew chief. And then two months later, or actually next year, the following season, I ended up being the production manager on the tour. And then, uh, you know, I got my divorce, unfortunately, well, fortunately, unfortunately, however you look at it, um, in 2000. And then that was uh, the first shot I got was uh, um, Metallica was doing their rehearsed, their one of their first shows on that first sanitarium tour at uh, Foxborough Stadium, and I had called uh, Stageco, who was the staging company for it, and they were initially going to put me on Dave Matthews, and uh, I was doing a load-in at uh, what we, a lot of us still call today, Great Woods, Uh, I think it's called Comcast Center now, um, in Mansfield, Mass., and uh, I got the phone call that I got bumped. Because someone else, you know, uh, a long timer with Stageco freed themselves up and bumped me off my spot. So I had been asked to do that, that load in and that steel build at Fox Road. I told him I'd leave, you know, I, I won't be in town. Ran back into production, told him I could do it, and uh, just really, really set it, you know, into my head that on that build, I was going to show them that company that they don't want to bump me off ever again. And uh, I worked my tail off uh, doing, you know, all the stage, all the, basically the, the total construction as we all, anybody on a steel build does. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, it, that's probably one of the hardest jobs that tours is being the stage, you know, the staging, oh, yeah. as we call it, stage director. And uh, you work with cranes and you've got to understand you know the safety factor when you're flying something around that weighs 5,000 pounds and is you know is 15 meters tall. That's a lot of juice there, you know. And uh, it was the same company. And the morning after the show, we're doing loadout, and the site coordinator and uh, not the site coordinator, um, but the uh, the two crew chiefs they had for the ship said, you know, uh, hey. We talked to you about something. I said, sure, what? And they said, can you be in Baltimore tomorrow? And I said, wow, wow. sure. And they said, you don't have any kind of commitments or anything like that? I said, "Did you? if you wanted to hear no, then you shouldn't have asked me. I said, you're supposed to put me on Dave Matthews. I got bumped off that. Um, yeah, I would very much like the opportunity to show you that, yeah, I can do this. And... That my so my first rock and roll tour was with the largest band in the world, and wow, it was wow. it was incredible. You know, it was a great experience. Um, it was a little overwhelming, you know. And, and I think a lot of people when they first do their first rock and roll tour, they kind of 
miss the boat on what really you're supposed to be doing out there. And, and at, at times I fell into that, but I never let it get in the way of the work I was doing. Um, and uh, so when Metallica did the sanitarium again in 2003, they, you know, they brought me back. So, but, and the other good thing was, is I met so many people because that's such a massive, massive production. There's so many people that you make, you know, and I, I'm a networking fool. So <laughs> it just kind of stepped around that. And uh, so, yeah, I guess Metallica was my stepping stone on that. And then it just kind of led around the bro- led around the block to, uh, yeah. What's that? Well, I'm, I'm kind of curious here. What was your original college major? <laughs> uh, arts administration from a... Um, uh, Cabrini College, just outside Philly, in a town called Radnor. It was a new program with them, and um, I had the opportunity. I was accepted at uh, University of Evansville and the uh, and DePaul in Chicago, and but uh, they all had and they all were new in the programs, and. Uh, but I wanted to go to Philly because I, I wanted it, like, again, I, I think. So, I, you know, I thought things through. And I had a, a support system in Philly because my mom's sisters lived there. And if something were ever to go wrong, I needed, you know, as you call it, sometimes you just need to get home. At least I could go there, you know, and they were 20 minutes away. So I looked at it that way. And it worked out great. I mean, it was a great, you know, plus I knew I was closer to New York City. You know, Philadelphia is a great music town. Um, which is amazing to say, seeing as I grew up in Cleveland, and uh, I actually did the. Uh, the actually, I, I got to strike that the first rock and roll show I ever did was the concert for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at Cleveland Stadium uh, back in the wow. summer of '95. Uh, so uh, that was massive. Yeah, yeah, I get, that, that just blows my mind, and it's neat to see how you really just progress. I mean, it seems like your work, work, your work ethic has been your most valuable asset. Yeah, I, I guess you can uh, blame or, or uh, uh, tip the hat to the, the German part of me. Um, I, I was actually, you know, it's funny, I was talking with my father and, and his wife about this the other night. Um, I actually had a day... Uh, the tour ended in Dayton that I was just on, and so I drove up to see my dad. And I said, you know, I think the hardest part for any man, any, any, and I mean this, a man, a person who understands, uh, you know, that there's, there's ways to work the system or you can beat the system. And I think beating the system is in my case being a man, being a father, and knowing the responsibilities, and knowing what you have to do to, in order to provide for that. And I got, and I think the hardest part for any of us, in, you know, in this business, because there's no, you know, you're not, you're never, unless you get lucky and you find a band that just keeps you on salary year round or a retainer, even when they're not out and stuff like that, which is so far gone anymore. Uh, I think a lot of part due to management companies. Um, being weary of their 20%, uh, a guy doesn't feel, a man doesn't feel like he's a man unless he's providing and he's got a sense of worth. Um, 
Like my father's retired and it drives him nuts. You know, he he he. And his wife says he's depressed. He says, "Yeah, he's got no purpose." She's well, he's my husband. I said, "No, that's not his purpose. That's his role. He's your husband. That's his role. That's his title. His purpose was, you know, my father building design trade show exhibits all over the country, and that's pretty much kind of where I got my start on, you know, reading blueprints and." Um, uh, overseeing how anything should come in and out of a venue. So I used to do that with him when I was young. And, it, you know, it's one of those things, when you don't work, you don't get paid. That's the hardest part about this business. You know, when the tour is over, well, see ya. Thanks for the hard work. It's not that we, you know, there, it's not that there, there's some bands that are loyal to their guys, they just keep them busy, you know, because um, they have those other side projects and stuff like that. But the majority is, you know, the tour's over. Well, that's it, you know. And then you're 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 collecting unemployment unless you're lucky enough that you wind up another gig. But uh, you know, again, it's that sense of it's the work ethic that underlies the 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 drive that I know what it takes. You know, I have responsibilities. I have a mortgage, car payment, uh, credit card bills, a two-year-old little boy. You know, a, a wonderful wife who's very understanding. That's the other thing is, you know, being understanding to your better half that you're not home. Yeah, yeah. And making them okay. feel yeah. like, you know, you got to still make them feel like you're standing right next to them. You know, you can be in Australia. If, if they don't feel it, forget it. You know, it, it wreaks havoc on yourself, on on your career. It wreaks havoc on your, you know, your mindset and your everything. And you've got to be able to, it's a juggling act. You know, but the bottom line, you know, outside of that work ethic, it's family's always first. So. Absolutely. But yeah, I've got a very, I've got a, I've got a, a work ethic that's so disgusting at times, and, and it's something I deal with all the time that um, people I tour with sometimes have a hard time dealing with it because, you know, if, if they're slacking off, I get on them about it. You know, even if they're above me in title, I, I don't. You know, because it, it trickles down. You know, everyone needs to do their job. You know, and and I always tell them, listen, if, if, if you're overwhelmed and you need some help with something, just give me a shout and I'll help you out. You know, so it's, yeah, work, you know, the work ethic is what drove me because I, I, I wasn't going to take no, and I knew knew what I wanted to do, and I knew what I had to do to get there. Um, so, uh you know, I did what I had to do and um, tried not to hurt anybody on the way. And I know I didn't. Do, I mean, if people got hurt, it was totally by accident. And you know, those those bumpy roads have been smoothed out. But uh, I guess the harder part now is, you know, there's there's kids that there's there's people out there who, as they say, like in L.A. You fail going up. You know, I know, I know, I know techs out there who get fired off a gig and end up with a better one after that, and they eventually get fired off of that and then get a better job after that. And like, is anybody checking references at all? You know, and I get stuck working with a band that's barely able to afford the tour bus they're on. You know, well, that guy gets good wheat. Well, big deal. No. It's a juggling act, you know, and it's 
you got to try and keep your ego in check, and you got to try and do. You, you got you, you always want to try and stay. You know, for me, it's all it's also about ethics. You know, you don't do something. You don't do something behind your buddy's back. You know, I I got I was a uh, I was let go from a tour, and I was actually glad. Um, and the guy who took over for me called me and. You know, was asking me how to set this rig up, and it blew me away at first. You know, because I knew what this rig. <coughs> excuse me. I knew it was a a very complex system, and uh, so I I helped him out. And after you know, I got him all up and running. You know, he said thanks. There's no problem, buddy. Good luck. You know, and hung up. Then I realized, wait a minute. This is my buddy. He's got my job, and I called him back. He said, Hey, dude, when did you find? When did you uh, get called for this? He said, Oh, last week. This is last week. Wow, wow. So you got called for this while I was on the tour, and you didn't call and tell me, knowing I was on this tour, to say, hey, I just got called about your job. Is everything okay? And they said, well, they told me not to. And I'm like, dude, you've known me for 15 years, and you did that to me? You know, he says, well, that's just kind of how it goes sometimes. I'm like, no, dude, that's not how it goes. That's one of the most unprofessional things I think you could have ever done. Plus, I'm your friend, dude. You know, and, and that stuff happens, you know. And there's also yeah, yeah. the younger generation that's trying to get their foot in the door. That's, you know, I've been lowballed out of tours because the kid said he would drive himself everywhere. <laughs> and manager's like, yeah, you know, we, we went with this kid. I said, well, what's different about, I mean, he's brand new. And, you know, I've been in this, you know, I've been doing this, you know, for quite a while, and this kid, you know, you're, he's four, you know, he's like, he's a, he's a child. Well, he said, you know, he's going to save us a lot of money because he's going to drive everywhere. I said, so at what point does it make sense when the kid wraps himself around a telephone pole in the middle of the night, either trying to shoot up on the meth to keep himself awake or the eight ball, outside of the fact that he just worked, you know, a 15-hour day, and now has an eight-hour drive ahead of him, and you expect him to do it again. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. he's either going to be dead, or the quality of work's going to be crappy, and you're going to fire him either way. And then you got to pay a premium airfare to fly out a new guy at, at zero notice, plus getting work boxes in and out. I said, you're losing a boatload of money to begin with, just on the idea. You know, but they but they do it. But they do it, and it's like, you know, yeah. I never lowballed anybody out of a gig. I always called about availability, what was going on, to see what it would pay, and that was that. But I would never say, well, I'll do it for a grand less just to get a job. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But it happens. You know, and that's the other thing is, you know, management sees, oh, hey, that's 20% out of that. Oh, yeah, that's even more in my pocket. So. So, yeah. so let's let's talk about then. How did you get into Tone Pros? How, how did you go from managing these you know, major production companies now into focusing on something so minute on a guitar? Um, well, first off, I wasn't managing anybody, but I was I was I was out you know touring with them. But that's the uh, the Tone Pros thing started actually when I was out with Eddie Money back in uh, two thousand three. I'd just come back from Metallica, and uh, I took a break that summer to go do it. And then I came back, and we had a day off in Evansville, Indiana. And I, 
I don't know, not a lot to do there outside of the casino. So there was a pawn shop, and I went into, and I found an early 70s Gibson SG2 with, you know, with the aluminum wraparound thing, tailpiece on it. Yeah. And uh, it, it was a, a pain in the backside to keep that thing intonated. And uh, a friend of mine, Lauren Ellis, out of Nashville, great guitar player, um, you know, she used to work at Rock Block Guitars. And I said, hey, uh, any solutions for this problem? And she, you know, she, she said, well, here, go check out this website. And, you know, I checked it out, and I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. Put it on the guitar, and, you know, nothing moved around, and the guitar player from Eddie Money was blown away, but what he was blown away by, I said, what else did you do to the guitar? I said, what do you mean? He said, it, it sings a lot better. I said, I, I guess that's kind of what it's supposed to do. And then, uh, you know, I kind of told a couple of the other, you know, I we were out doing shows. We do shows with Loverboy, and we do shows with, uh, uh, what's his name from uh, Jefferson Starship, the singer, the guy. Um, anyway, um, and his guitar player had a Les Paul, and the bridge was, you know, smiling. It was sunk. And uh, I said, well, here, I have one of these. Try this on there. And, you know, again, he said, what else did you do? I said, well, I just put that bridge and tailpiece on. He said, but the guitar is completely different. It's so much more alive. I'm like, wow, people really like this stuff. And then I was, you know, summer 2004, I got a phone call from my roommate. He says, hey, uh, do you want to go to Europe with me doing lighting? I said, for who? He says, Metallica. I said, no, having just come off that tour, I said, sure, I'll go do it. And I was for St. Anger, and Slipknot was opening up for him. So I figured, you know, I'd been to the website, and I looked at their roster, and, you know, artists like uh, um, Ronnie Montrose. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, legend, but does anybody anymore of the younger generation even know who Montrose is? No. Bernie Marsden. Amazing guitar player, you know, from Whitesnake way back in the day. But when you think, when kids think of Whitesnake, who do they think of? Steve I, uh, Vivian Campbell, John Sykes, maybe, if they can remember that yeah. far back. Or, um, you know, Adrian Vandenberg. They, they don't know Bernie Marsden. Great player, but they don't know him. So I figured, you know, but it was, and it was artists like that. There was really, you know, they had, I think the most, current artist I could have remembered from the uh, roster back then was Steve Stevens from Billy Idol. I'm like, well, so I said, how about, I, I, so I called the company, I said, I, and I always talked to Dwight Devereaux, the owner, who also was the inventor of it, the, and ironically, the original guitar player for Tommy Two-Tone, if you remember the 8675309 Jenny show, song, but yeah, uh, yeah. They, they were, they were, the band was removed from from Tommy's band and then replaced by the people who were in the video. But, uh, um, so I called Dwight again. I said, Hey, listen, I'm going over to Europe with uh, Metallica. Now I know you've got Metallica per se, cause you know, from the ESP models, cause I know ESP puts their stuff on every guitar, especially every single artist model. Um, I said, how about I take some of those wraparound PRS-style bridges over there for Slipknot because they're playing B.C. Riches and Paul Reed Smith. And I said, well, if you'd like to do that, I'd appreciate that. I said, I think they'll like it. 
And he says, well, they, yeah, that's fine. I said, by the way, you know, do you have um, do you have an artist relations department? Because I, I, I really hate inconveniencing, you know, the owner of the company, figuring he's got bigger, bigger things to deal with than filling an order. And he says, no, it's just me here. I mean, if you think about it, it's just bridges, tailpieces, and that's it. Not a big company. And I said, well, do you want an artist relations guy? He said, well, do you know anybody? I said, well, why not me? I said, I'm on the road all the time. That's high visibility for your product. And he says, well, I guess. And we can try it out and see how it works. I said, well, how, what's your approach been? And he says, well, you know, I just kind of try to get it to my classic rock buddies and, you know, who come through the, the Oakdale area, which usually meant Sacramento. And um, just, you know, kind of see if they like it. And I said, don't take this statement the wrong way, but you're going at it the wrong way. <laughs> he says, what do you mean? I said, whenever you give anything to an artist, you know, they'll, if they like it, they'll use it, they'll do their record, they'll do their tour, they'll go home. Um, seldomly, as, as much as I noticed, and I could be wrong, but I don't ever remember, you know, like, for example, Tommy Gervin from Eddie Money really telling me anything that he really liked. Like, what piece of gear just blew his brains out and he had to have it? I said, you give it to this product to a technician, to, you know, to the tech, and they're going to, you know, they're going to install it on the, on the guitar for the artist, and then they're going to realize what it does for the artist, but also, you know, the things that it benefits them. You know, like, for example, when you've got a bridge and tailpiece that is now locked in place and you've got to replace a pickup, you take three quarters of the work away because you don't have to set the guitar back up, you know, trying to figure out what the height was. But it's already locked in place. I mean, it, it really saves time on a lot of things for a tech. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's, you gotta you gotta clean the guitar. You really gotta lean in and clean it. You can take all the strings off, and that thing's locked in place. And you run that rag by the height, some wheels, it's not going to move. Again, you're taking a lot of work out. Now, you know, of course, you should always check to make sure you know something didn't change when you take the string tension off, but the majority of it, in that case, would have been, you know, the neck moved. And uh, I, he says, I said, so I think if, if you're uh, willing, <coughs> excuse me, I think a good idea, and what I would do is I would send five sets to five of my buddies out here. And let's see what happens. He says, what do you mean? I said, if you give it to the tech, they're going to put it on for the artist, and they're going to tell all their buddies, dude, check this stuff out. And then they're going to tell their buddies. And who are their buddies telling? The artists. Boom. It's a virus. You've got to spread it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Great plan. Give it to the tech. The techs talk. They'll talk more than the artists will. So, uh, you know, and it worked. Um, and that artist roster, by, you know, that was May of 2004 and at the January NAM show uh, the artist roster was um, you know we had Silver Tide who were new and exciting Shine Down was new and exciting um, uh, who else who else did I bring in that year um, Slipknot uh, and as you can say they are very exciting um 
and, and it just it's escaped my mind. But the, the roster is over a hundred relevant artists, current artists, by January. Um, Christian from Fear, yeah, Christian from Fear Factory, Dan Donegan from Disturbed, um, Scott Ian from Anthrax. You know, then the following year, um, uh, we brought in some bigger names, and the year after that, I brought in Rick Nielsen, and you know. There's a lot of great guitar players out there, and Rick Nielsen often gets overlooked as one of them. But when you look at the guitars that guy has, it comes back to you, oh, yeah, you know. And we did, I did the guitar he started, you know, the first day there, I just put one on the guitar that he started the show with. And he came up for sound checks just as he said, I just want to make sure you didn't fuck anything up. So uh, I handed him the guitar, and he turned around, and he says, Jiminy Crickets, what happened? I said, what do you mean? He says, there's so much more sustain in everything. And our front of house guy says, yeah, because you have a tech who under, who knows how to do things right. And I said, it, uh, it's not the tech. It's what the tech brought to the table as far as one piece of gear. And uh, I did the same thing with Billy Duffy of the cult. Um, that following that same year, then we got Clinton, John from Seven Dust, and we had, later we got Sonny. Um, you know, and uh, was it uh, Dark New Day when Cor- when Troy when uh, Clint left and formed Dark New Day? Uh, if I remember, they stopped rehearsals after they. We, I sent a set down for him and Troy to try out. They stopped rehearsals because the other guitars didn't sound as good until they got the new bridges in, so they could set up everything. So I mean, it really made an impact. I was like, you know what, I'm onto something here, and. Uh, it did a lot of good for me because, you know, working, you know, and then I started to expand, you know, I started bringing artists like Warren Haynes to the table, and we got, um, you know, Foo Fighters, but, you know, the, the, again, there's a lot of artists that won't allow you to do advertising, and that's understandable, but, you know, the Foo Fighters loved it, you know, um, excuse me, uh, Nick Catney's from Black Label Society was probably, and still is to this day, probably one of my favorite artists to deal with. And it's gone beyond to the point, you know, we just call it chit-chat. You know, he's a great guy. Um, his family's wonderful. And, you know, it's, it's really opened a lot of doors, both professionally and personally for me. You know, artists like Doug Aldrich, they're just, you know, Jerry Horton from Papa Roach, uh, Mike Mushock from Stained. It's just, there's been a lot of artists I really enjoy. You know, hey, I, you know, my guitar's got stolen. And I got all these new Les Pauls, can you help me out? Well, yeah, we're going to help you out here, you know. You know, you've been good to us. You've been good to me. Yeah, sure. You know, we'll help you out. And that's, it's a very, you know, being such a small company, there was a, a, a good sense of family, you know, with Dwight and Sharon and uh, his two boys. And it was, it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun, and they were happy. You know, I really gave them quite the list of, you know, you know, when I brought, you know, I said, well, by the way, I need you to send this out to uh, this venue in in, uh, in New York. I said, for who? I said, for Angus Young. All I heard was the phone drop. You know, he says, I can't believe you got me Angus Young. I said, well, you, I would have him give me a project artist every year. And, you know, I got him Slash the first time. And then, uh, you know, got him Billy Joe Armstrong. And then he said, let's get Angus Young. I said, I'm two steps ahead of you. And uh, he says, what? And all I heard was the phone drop. And then there was a phone call that I got from him 
And he says, you'll never guess who I just sent parts to. You'll never guess in a million years. And I, and I said, uh, thrill me. He said, you ready? You're sitting down? I said, yeah. He says, Les Paul. I said, oh, yeah, I'm sure. What do you mean you're sure? I said, oh, I've been sending less parts for years. <laughs> he says, you have? I said, yeah. He says, well, why didn't you tell me? I said, well, that's why I keep surplus at my house. I can just ship it from here, you know. It's, it's cheaper to ship from New Hampshire down to, to New York City than it is from Sacramento. Oh, yeah. Well, how did you get a hold of Les Paul? I said, well, my grandfather used to play with Les. <laughs> I, I, and I found that out when I was in high school when I interviewed Les for my high school newspaper. And it just kind of, he, he always remembered who I was. You know, and and uh, when I started working with Tone Pros, I, the first thing I did was wrap the set and send it to him. And you know, I was, I said, yeah, you're. That's no surprise to me. And that was damn. I mean, you know, it's it's like imagine if you handed one to Leo Fender, and he's like, oh yeah. Oh okay, so yeah. It was. Uh, it's really opened a lot of doors, and it's and it and again, the whole principle around it, it you can't argue it. It's physics. You know, it's, uh, you know, the, the way Dwight explained it to me originally made a lot of sense. He says, I imagine you've, you've seen the Liberty Bell, right? Right, right. I said, he says, you know, those two pins in that crack serve two purposes, right? I said, no, they do? No. Yeah, I mean, I always do what they put in there to keep the crack from moving. And he says, you know what happens when you take those two pins out? You hit the bell, and it rings from crack to crack, and... The sustain goes away almost immediately. You'll hear a decay, but it will not continue to transfer. There's no resonance transfer between the crack. You know, he says you put the two pins there. A, it keeps the pins from moving, or the crack from moving. B, continue, continual bell harmonic resonance transfer. It's the same thing we did here. We actually, I guess initially, his initial idea behind it, to stop the crack from moving. His tech kept screwing up his setup, so he put these two holes in it, threaded it, and put a small set screw in it to keep the the bridge from moving whenever the dingbat would clean it. And then, you know, he kind of realized there was something different about the guitar. You know, it had a little more, a little more sustain, a little, a lot more resonance transfer. The harmonics, the bell harmonics were there. Just the guitar came into life. So we actually experimented with the. Uh, location of the set screw around the uh, the bridge post and the stud for the tailpiece until he came up with what he had for maximum transfer. So it served two purposes. It kept things from moving, you know, and improved uh, string vibrational transfer down to your tonal woods. Now, who wouldn't want that? It's physics. Contact creates oh, yeah. conduction. You know? You can't get power in an extension cord until you make contact with power. Got to plug it into the wall. So it's just, it's all the same. It's a it's a principle of physics. You can't, you know, as they say in Latin, "quadrat demonstrandum," it works. And it's funny because you wouldn't think that something so minute can make such a big deal in your tone. Exactly. You know, now, what other products do you guys have planned? You, other than bridges or anything else you planning on expanding on? Well, uh, I think it was three or four years ago, uh, Dwight bought Cluson tuners. And uh, the old vintage style tuners, uh, the old, you oh, know, yeah. Oh, yeah. the 
keystone, the ugly green keystone tuners that go to crap, you know, on, on most Les Pauls and, and 335s that everyone just swapped out for Grovers. Um, well, Dwight uh, bought out that and uh, improved it to a 16 to 1 gear as opposed to 8 to 1. A box and a plate that the, uh, the gear mechanism and the post sit in that are cast as opposed to those two little finger holes that hold it onto the faceplate so the thing doesn't come loose and usually those two little you know screw or uh, fingers would come loose which would bring the housing loose which would loosen the post which would loosen the gears and there goes your tuner um, and uh, you know he does uh, he has the, uh, the we have the the keystone tuners uh, uh, we even do them in black which is kind of cool uh, we have the the three per side clues, the keystones, we have the three per side with the metal buttons, we have the three on a rails like with the white buttons that were on juniors, we have the six in line like for the strats and tellies, um, basically anything on made we make. Um, he offered originally with an upgraded post height which was a millimeter taller than the original ones if you remember uh, you, you could barely get a wrap on a low E string so he made it a millimeter taller so you could get at least two to three wraps on it. Um, but a lot of people kind of said, well, then you've got 15 million wraps on your, your high strings. Well, you can still do three, but it changed your brake angle. So Dwight said, well, all right, fine. We'll, we'll go back to the original post height as well. So they offered that. They offered, you know, so there's the, the vintage style with, you know, the press pushing, the bolt, and the taller post and the press pushing, but there's also the bolt bush, the bolt bushing style, which I prefer. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's locking versions of it. Um, it comes in gold, nickel, chrome, black. Uh, if I remember, it's uh, satin nickel, which is kind of cool. Gives you that kind of aged look. They will they will custom age things for you. Um, and uh, you know for. A, for a fee, um, there's they, we just came out with the roller bridge as well. You know, so if your guitar had a big V on it, you know, instead of going to Graph Tech saddles, um, oh, which tend, oh. which tend to soften your tone, but you know, it yeah, allows yeah. the string to slide a little better. But eventually, it'll just cut a groove in your saddle. Well, now they have we just came out with the roller bridge at, at the Summer Nam show, and apparently Gibson's gone bananas over those, so they bought up. Like the first three orders that were shipped out from overseas. Oh, that's cool. that's cool. uh, there was talks. There were talks. I remember that that first year I was there, there was a prototype for a Strat bridge. Um, but uh, there hasn't really been much talk after that. So I don't know what's going to go up there. Now there's other things that are coming up, but I can't discuss them yet. Let's <laughs> start. <laughs> Well, Wookie, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I really want to thank you for coming on the show today. And um, thank you so much. No problem. Glad to do it. All right, so we are back, and that was our interview with um, Wookie of Tone Pros. So, again, he's a really fun guy to talk to, so many great stories. Um, it's really fun to be able to talk to the guys that really make things work out on the road, you know, the, the road crew, because, you know, everyone thinks about the rock stars that you see in those great guitarists, 
But it's guys like Wookie that make sure that they can deliver the, that awesome show to us, the fans, every night. So, you know, hats off to all those guys that do that hard work. Um, and definitely check out Tone Pros. Uh, TonePros.com is the website. I was definitely interested in checking them out. And then um, I have a guitar that has the Tune Max style bridge. And after talking with Wookie, I came home, looked at it a little closer, did some investigative work, and realized I have a Tone Pros bridge that just wasn't set up properly. So now that I'm going to get it set up properly and make sure that it's, um, I got the set screws locked down like what uh, Brian was talking about, I'm going to have a heck of a little guitar on my hands here. So I'm definitely excited to try that out. All right, so a couple things before, um, before I forget here. At the, um, at the top of the show, I forgot I wanted to talk about Stompboxtober. So Stompboxtober is at PremierGuitar.com. It's one of my favorite guitar magazines that I read. Um, over the years, I've, I've read a ton. And these guys, I guess I think I've just made it into the uh, age bracket maybe that where where this is the kind of magazine i like but they're all about gear i'm all about gear so i love this magazine and uh so anyway stompboxtober starting here on october 3rd well i guess october 2nd um they're going to be giving away uh one different effects pedal or one different stompbox every day for 40 days there's at least 40 pedals up here so check them out premierguitar.com and uh you can find the stompboxtober giveaways there it's every day come back enter every day get a new pedal um, I know I'm going to be out here trying to get as many pedals as I possibly can, so I'm excited about that. Um, and really, that's kind of it for the show here. We are going to close with a song by my old band, Darkwater, and the song is called About the Flesh. And the reason we're closing with that song is because I've been trying to figure out, what am I going to do for theme songs? What am I going to do for music? Because I want to have more than just me talking and more than the interviews. And I'm like, well, I've got the band. I don't have to worry about getting permission to play it because I just could ask myself and I certainly give myself permission to play it. So um, you will be hearing about the flesh as we close and I thought it'd be rather fitting to play a couple of these tracks because on my blog recently I did a post about my um, my guitar, Sean's guitar, his RG550. So you can actually hear that guitar in action now. Uh, so anyway, you can find us on the web at signaltonoise.fm at facebook.com slash sgnl, the number 2nz, at twitter.com slash sgnl, the number 2nz. And that's it. I am out of here. Until next time, make some noise, and I'll see you later.